Right. <clears throat> now, during the time of the early church, they didn't have newspapers as such because, of course, printing hadn't been invented. But nevertheless, the early church was certainly in the news, all right? And had there been newspapers, then the early church would have certainly been making uh, the front headlines. Well, it's happening again today. The church is in the headlines. And yet, I'm afraid, it's slightly different. I've got here the Daily Mail, Thursday, November the 12th. The front page headline is this, Scandal of Gay Vicars. The Christian church has managed to get into the national headlines. More than that, just three weeks ago, Belinda and I watched on Panorama, um, a program which is seen by millions of people, where there was an in-depth interview with leaders from the Church of England, and also they televised an actual service where two practicing homosexuals, because in this country they cannot be legally married in any way at all, but nevertheless, an Anglican vicar was conducting a service joining these two homosexuals together in Christian marriage and union. And so the nation has become very aware that the Christian church is there. And regrettably, we now have a situation where practicing homosexuals are now church leaders and are condoning homosexual practice from the very pulpit in the name of Jesus. Now, obviously, tonight, in covering this subject, because we've got to know what to do with this, we've got to know how to respond to this as Christians. And in doing that, I obviously, tonight, am going to home in on the Church of England. Now, I make no apology for that whatsoever. This isn't my fault. I am not encouraging practicing homosexuals to be leaders in the Church. So, whatever I say tonight, the, the kind of... I mean, the fact of the matter is, the Church of England has asked for it. There's nothing we can do. That's the way it is. We've got to know how to respond to it. So then, we have practicing homosexuals in the priesthood. Now, the first thing I want to do, because obviously the problem we've got to confront ourselves with tonight is what you do when you have leaders in the Christian church who are practicing homosexuals. Now, firstly, obviously, as you are all aware, the Church of England's leadership is a priesthood. And, of course, we know from the New Testament that this is itself completely wrong. All believers are priests. The idea now of having a priesthood is completely against what the Bible teaches remembering that everything in the Old Testament, including the priesthood, was simply there to foreshadow what Jesus was going to do. And the function of a priest is to mediate between men and women and God. And of course it was simply to foreshadow the coming of Jesus as our great high priest. Jesus is the mediator between us and God. And because we now follow Jesus, because we are his disciples, we are all priests. The reason being that you and I can introduce anyone to Jesus. Therefore, we can mediate between anyone and God. We are all priests. So firstly, the idea of a church having its leaders as being priests is itself completely wrong. And of course, whereas, for instance, the Church of England has a priesthood, we know that in actual fact leadership in the church should be by each church having a group of elders who are ruling it. So the point is, it shouldn't be priests anyway, but the question is, uh, should practicing homosexuals be permitted to be leaders in the Christian church. Now, what I'm going to show you tonight is not only does the Bible teach that practicing homosexuals should not be permitted to be leaders in the Christian church, we are going to see that they should be barred from the Christian church for a song. Now, from the very beginning, 
we've got to make a distinction and I emphasize this now and I shall be returning to it later everything I am going to say tonight is to do with people who call themselves Christians yet who are willfully practicing homosexuality I am not talking about people who have a problem with homosexuality who have become Christians who are repentant of it and struggling with it I am not talking about them in the slightest I am talking about people who whilst claiming to be Christians are willfully practicing their homosexuality they are not repentant they do not admit that it's wrong and they are willfully carrying on with it these are the people that I'm talking about and these are the people in the headlines pertaining to the Church of England now the first thing we've got to do is we've got to look at homosexual practice itself and find out what the Bible says about it and we're going to see clearly and if you turn to Genesis 19 we're going to have a quick flip through the Bible and we're going to see that the Bible is unequivocal in its condemnation of homosexual practice it is a sin and we're going to see this very clearly now in Genesis 19 we have the story the famous story about Sodom and Gomorrah and as you know Sodom and Gomorrah was eventually destroyed but the reason that it was destroyed was because the men in that city were practicing homosexuality in a totally unrepentant way alright so they were involved in willful homosexual sexual Im immorality and it was for that reason that God's judgment came down upon Sodom let's just begin with from verse 1 two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom when Lot saw them he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and he said my lords turn aside I pray you to your servants house and spend the night and wash your feet then you may rise up early and go your way but they said no we'll spend the night in the street but he urged them strongly so they turned aside to him and entered his house and he made them a feast verse 4 but before they lay down the men of the city <coughs> the men of Sodom both young and old all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot where are the men who came to you tonight bring them out to us that we may know them and here the men of Sodom surround Lot's house these are in fact two angels but they look like men and the men want to get hold of these two angels who they think are ordinary male human beings in order to have sex with them if you go down into verse 16 when morning dawned the angels urged Lot saying arise take your wife and your two daughters who are here lest you be consumed in the punishment of this city and verse 24 then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground now there you see quite clearly God's punishment of Sodom because of blatant and willful homosexual practice go to Romans Romans chapter 1 and we'll hear what Paul says about it in the New Testament <clears throat> Romans 1 and we'll read from verse 24 therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. There you have lesbianism. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women <coughs> and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Go now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <coughs> verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, and then the list carries on, will inherit the kingdom of God. And this word here in the Greek, homosexuals, because the word didn't actually exist all those years ago, but the Greek word here translated homosexuals is arsenokoite. Now it comes from two different Greek words, arson, which means male, and koite, which means bed. And it literally means to bed a male, a male bedding a mile. That's what the word means. And then if you go to 1 Timothy, the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, <coughs> chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, now we know that the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully. Understand this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, immoral persons, sodomites, and there's the word homosexual again. So we can see quite clearly that the Bible shows us very clearly that homosexual practice or lesbian practice is a sin. Now, one of the things that you tend to find is that obviously in all this uh, furore surrounding the Church of England at the moment, they have various vicars who they interview who are practicing homosexuals, living with their boyfriends and yet still carrying on in the so-called priesthood. And obviously they have to try and justify themselves in any way they can. And one of the arguments that they bring up is this. They say that Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. And therefore, if Jesus was silent on it, what can it matter? Now, they're absolutely true. In Jesus' ministry, he never explicitly covered the subject of homosexual practice. But does that tell us anything? Well, no, it doesn't, because Jesus never covered, for instance, child molesting. Does that mean that child molesting is of no consequence? Of course it doesn't. It's a ridiculous argument. And yet what I'm going to show you now is that we're going to take the teaching of Jesus. And even though he never dealt with this in an explicit way, I'm going to show you nevertheless that Jesus' teaching also makes it clear that homosexual practice is a sin. First of all, if you go to Matthew 10, Matthew chapter 10, and the significance of these verses is that Jesus refers to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Matthew chapter 10, And verse 14, <clears throat> Jesus says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. This is Jesus having sent out the disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom to Israel. And he says, if they don't listen, clear off, go somewhere else. Truly I say to you, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, Jesus is not there 
sort of saying, you know, that the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah was unjust. He takes it for granted that the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah for homosexual practice was just. There's no question here of Jesus disagreeing with that judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah in any way at all. Go over to chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, and verse 6. Sorry, verse 4. And this is Jesus speaking about marriage. He says, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Now then, go over to, go back now into chapter 15. Chapter 15 and find verse 18. Still, this is Jesus speaking. He says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, and he now lists sins which come out of man's evil heart. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false, etc. Now here, Jesus says that fornication, which is to have sex outside of marriage, is a sin. We saw in Matthew 19 that Jesus' clear teaching is that marriage is between men and women. This then, according to the teaching of Jesus, means it is impossible for practicing homosexuals or practicing lesbians to marry. Therefore, because they cannot marry, any sexual practice that they partake of is outside of marriage. It falls firmly into the area of fornication, which is condemned by Jesus as being a sin. So can you see that there is no safety for anyone trying to take recourse in Jesus' silence on the subject? The teaching of Jesus covers it quite clearly, not in an explicit way, I grant you, but we can see from the teaching of Jesus very, very clearly that his teaching also shows us that homosexual practice is a sin. And yet, having said that, you must be careful of something else as well. Because you find that lots of Christians, if we have in the Gospels the recorded teaching of Jesus on a subject, they put more emphasis on Jesus' teaching than on anything else in the Bible. Now this is a tremendous mistake, and I'll tell you why it's a tremendous mistake. It's simply because Jesus himself wrote the whole Bible in any case. The teaching of Jesus is no more authoritative than any other part of the Bible whatsoever, because Jesus himself is the author of the Bible from start to finish. We've covered 1 Corinthians 7 here when we've dealt on questions about divorce and remarriage, etc., etc. And one of the things we've noticed is that when Paul came to teach on the question of should two believers who are married get divorced, We've seen in 1 Corinthians 7, although we won't turn to it, we haven't got time, but we've seen how, Jesus, how Paul gives a command of the Lord about that subject. He then goes on to deal with the question as to what happens if you've got a believer married to an unbeliever. And he says, not the Lord, but I say to you. And we saw there that it simply meant that the ministry of Jesus during the three and a half years that he was preaching, Jesus covered the area of divorce amongst believers who were married. He never ever touched on the area of the question of a believer being married to an unbeliever. 
So in 1 Corinthians 7, what Paul says is this. He says in his ministry, his earthly ministry, Jesus dealt with the one. He didn't deal with this, so I'm dealing with this. I'm giving you the word of the Lord on the question of divorce between uh, when you've got a believer married to an unbeliever. So can you see, Jesus is behind the whole Bible in any case. He wrote it from Genesis to Revelation. So the point is that don't get the idea that if we can actually turn to Jesus' spoken, recorded words in the Gospel, that that is somehow more authoritative than the Bible's teaching elsewhere. It's not more authoritative at all. The Bible is authoritative as God's Word from start to finish. Every part of it. Because the Lord himself wrote the whole thing, albeit through different men at different times. Now, what I want to move on to now, we've seen that homosexual practice is a sin. But what I want to show you now is that it is a particular type of sin. And, in fact, in the Old Testament, homosexual practice is called an abomination. And it is called an abomination along with bestiality, which is when men or women have do sexual acts with animals. If you go to Leviticus chapter 18, and I want to show you why this should be, why it is called an abomination and lumped together with bestiality. Now, Leviticus and chapter 18, <coughs> verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any beast. Now, can you see? It's in the same category. And you shall not lie with any beast and defile yourself with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to a beast to lie with it. It is perversion. Now, what I want to show you is that the reason that these particular types of sin are called an abomination, because heterosexual sin is not called an abomination. If a man and woman have sex outside of marriage, that is a sin, or if they commit adultery, that is a sin, but it is not an abomination. Abomination is specific to things like bestiality, homosexual practice, or lesbian practice. And the reason is this, it is a sin against nature. It is a sin against God's created order, so that there is an order in creation. And if there is any attempt to go against that order, to turn around, to mix up that order that God has set in nature, any attempt to go against it is what the Bible calls an abomination. And in Leviticus 18.23, we've seen here that it's called, it is perversion. Now, in the King James Version, you will have not perversion, but confusion. It is confusion. And the reason for that is that it comes from a Hebrew word which means to mix, to mix up. A sin against nature mixes up God's created order, and therefore it is an abomination. Now, in order to illustrate the seriousness of this kind of thing, because I want you to keep bearing in mind that the reason that tonight I am homing in on homosexual practice is for the very reason that the Christian church is now in the national headlines condoning it. And remember, they have condoned it because those men doing it have not been given either the opportunity of repenting or being thrown out. This is why we have to home in on this. It's tremendously important. And to show you how serious it is, we're going to now look an, at an example of an abomination 
being committed in the angelic realm. Alright. Now remember, we're not talking, when we talk about homosexual practice or lesbian practice, bestiality, whatever you have, we are not talking about heterosexual immoral acts. This is specifically going against God's created order and therefore is an abomination. Now we'll see from the angelic realm an example of it. Now we've done this here before but we're going to go over it again. Because we know from the Bible that Satan and all the evil spirits, remember evil spirits were simply angels, as Satan was, who turned against God, that most of them are free to roam the earth. All of them except one group, alright? And there are one group of evil spirits who did something that God considered to be so wrong and so heinous and so evil and so serious that he has actually locked them up and they are at present not free like the other evil spirits. They are locked up in a special prison that God created for them. And we're going to see that what these angels did, these evil spirits did, was precisely the kind of thing that we are looking at when we deal with homosexual practice. They crossed over the forbidden sexual barrier. If you go to Luke chapter 20, And something that Jesus said. Luke chapter 20 and verse 34. <clears throat> he says, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are accounted worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Jesus is talking about our future state when we get our resurrection bodies. He says, They neither marry nor are given in marriage. They cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, what the bit I want out of that is this. Jesus is here saying that in the resurrection body, human beings will no longer procreate sexually. Now, in certain, by the time we get our glorified bodies, we will share certain things in common with the angels. We're not going to be the same as the angels, but we will share certain things in common with the angels. And one of those things is that we will not marry or be given in marriage. Angels cannot have sexual experience because angels are not sexual beings. All right. Now the reason for this is that the type of being they are, they were not equipped as we are for sexual experience. But the point is this, if angels could take on human physical bodies, then they could have sexual experience and they could procreate sexually. Now what I want to show you now is that there was a certain time in history when a group of evil spirits did precisely that. If you go to Genesis chapter 6, and in fact we're going to look at the straw that broke the camel's back, the final evil whereby God says I'm going to destroy the world with a flood and start again. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. When men became to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took to wife such as them as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. He is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. And that bit, the flood, came 120 years after this. So God says, Right, you've had it. 120 years and I'm going to wipe the whole lot of you out except Noah. 
The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men that revolved, the men of renown. Now here we have the sons of God taking the daughters of men, having sex with them, and procreating. The result being the Nephilim, alright? the giants. This is where the giants of old came from. Now what we're interested in is to find out who the sons of God are, because they are not men. And what I want to show you is that in the Old Testament, the term sons of God was always used of angels and never men at all. Go to the book of Job. Job is thought to be the oldest book in the Bible, the first one written, which makes it written by Moses. Job, chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now where's the Lord? In heaven. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Whence have you come from? And Satan answered, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now that's an idiom for ownership, alright? So here Satan presents himself to God in heaven. And God says to him, You know, what have you been up to? Where have you been? Like, and Satan says, I own the earth, you know. And this is why God says, You know, in effect, have you considered my servant Job? He says, You own the earth. You sure? What about Job? You don't own him. And the whole book of Job is God proving to Satan that Satan didn't own Job. Job. But here's the point. The sons of God present themselves with Satan in heaven. Well, they're not men, are they? They're the angels. Uh, if you go over into chapter 2 and verse 1, you see it again. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Alright? Now, this scene is in heaven. It's the sons of God. It's angels. If you go over to chapter 38, Job 38, Job was a real hero. The Lord was really with him. He was a genuine man, but he did get a little bit big for his boots towards the end because he was doing so well, you see. Don't be down on Job. God wasn't down on Job. Job wasn't wrong. Job was absolutely right. But when he realised it, he did get a bit big for his boots, you see. So God just wants to cut him down to size a bit. So he asked him a series of questions. And in verse 4, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Now, when, when someone asks you that, you're stuck. <laughs> Can you see? I mean, your head shrinks. You know, because, I mean, here's God saying, Look, Job, don't get too big for your boots, mate. Where were you when I was creating the universe? And Job realises that he's a created creature, speaking now to the Creator, so he kind of shrinks back down to size. But the context here, God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Now go down to verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Well, I mean, when God created the world... There were no men there shouting for joy, but the sons of God were. Why? They are the angels. So we can see in the Old Testament times, the phrase sons of God always referred to angels. And we have seen one group of angels at the time of just before Noah's flood procreating, taking on physical bodies and having sex with the daughters of men, with women. Now, we're going to see that God considered this to be so terrible that he meted out a special judgment on them which was not meted out to the other evil spirits and even on Satan himself, who didn't actually do this thing. If you go to the second epistle of Peter, to Peter, to 
2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. He says, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, now as you all must know by now, <laughs> hell is an unscriptural word. Always look at the bottom for the proper Greek, and it's Tartarus. It's this place at the centre of the earth, Tartarus. But cast them into Tartarus and committed them to pits of nether gloom. And I've told you as well that the nether gloom there, the Greek is a busos, and it's the same as the bottomless pit in Revelation. Tartarus is, the bottom, is known as the bottomless pit in the book of Revelation. But uh, to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah, all right, herald of righteousness, so that links it up with the time of Noah. But look at verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that ties it up with sexual abomination, homosexual practice, or the equivalent, by tying it up there with Sodom and Gomorrah. So there you see these angels, what they did was so terrible, transgressing the natural sexual barriers that God had put there, which were not to be gone over, God actually cast them down into Tartarus, and has kept them locked up ever since. Go over into the book of Jude, which is just before the book of Revelation. Jude we have more mention of these evil spirits. Jude and verse 6. And the angels that did not keep their own position, but left their proper dwelling, have been kept by him in eternal chains in the nether gloom, the bottomless pit, Tartarus, until the judgment of the great day. Alright? Now then, let's go through this. And the angels did not keep their own position. Now, that word there, I think the AV has it did not keep their own estate. The important Greek word in that lot is archi, and it means the original position, the original state that they were in. So what we've got is these angels, they left their, orig their original condition, they changed it. So they did something which meant they were no longer as they were originally created and were meant to be. And then it goes on, but left their proper dwelling. Alright, they left their proper dwelling. Now, that word there for dwelling is oikoterium. And in order to understand what it means, if you turn to 2 Corinthians 5, I'll show you where it is used elsewhere in the New Testament, and you can see exactly what dwelling oikoterium actually means. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're looking for this word oikoterium. Verse 1, Paul says, We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. Here indeed we long to put on our heavenly dwelling, and that word there, dwelling, is oikoterium, so that by putting it on, we may not be found naked. While we are still in this tent, we sigh with anxiety. Not that we will be unclothed, but we will be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Now then, go down to verse 6. We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Now Paul says in verse 2, we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. What is he talking about? The context is the resurrection body. And this Greek word, oikoterium, translated dwelling, here in 2 Corinthians 5, and in the passage we've read from Jude, it means a body. Now having established that, go back to Jude. The angels that did not keep their own position but left their proper dwelling, let me paraphrase that into what we've got. The angels that did not remain as they were originally created but changed their nature, left their proper bodies. 
abandoned their proper bodies. Can you see? Because these evil spirits had the power to actually take on physical human bodies. And therefore, because they could do that, having now a human body, they were therefore able to procreate and to have sexual experience. And can you see, because you then had angels having sexual experience with women, the human race, you have an abomination. You have a sin against nature. You have a sin against God's created order. And these angels, God was considered it to be so awful what they had done that he threw the lot of them down into Tartarus and they have been there and they are still there to this day. And of course in other studies we have seen in fact that one day in fact they are going to be released onto the earth again during the second half of the tribulation during the reign of the Antichrist leading up to the second coming of Jesus. And of course in 1 Peter 3, but don't turn to it, there's that passage there about Jesus after he died preaching to the spirits <laughs> All right, and of course we've seen that when Jesus died and went down into the centre of the earth into paradise, the believer's compartment, at one point you see, these demons down in Tartarus in the centre of the earth, they didn't know that they had been beaten. Satan did and all the other evil spirits did. But these guys, they didn't because they were in the centre of the earth. And Jesus went over into their compartment and proclaimed to them the victory that he'd won over them because of his death on the cross. But bearing that in mind, back to Jude, and now I'm going to read verse 7. Remember, we've been looking at these angels and what they did. Now again, look at the comparison in verse 7. Speaking about them, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise acted immorally, can you see, homosexual practice is likened to what these angels did. Likewise acted immorally and indulged in unnatural lust. And can you see, when you have a sexual sin, which is in the class or the classification of being an abomination, it's because you have unnatural love. It goes against God's created order. Therefore, homosexual practice is an abomination. Lesbian practice is an abomination. Bestiality is an abomination. Incest is an abomination. Can you see all these things because they're going against God's natural order? Child abuse, sexual child abuse is also an abomination for the reason that there, you see, if you have an adult and a child who have sexual experience together, that is not normal heterosexual sin. It's an abomination because a child is before the age of sexual maturity. God has designed us so that we come of age for sexual maturity. Sexual child abuse is an abomination because it's sexual experience with a human being before they are ready for it. Pre-pubescent children. Alright. So then, we can see from the comparisons that we've been through that homosexual practice is a serious thing. I want to keep emphasising, and we will be back to this later, I am speaking about people who call themselves Christians and who may well be, yet continue in homosexual practice refusing to repent of it, refusing to admit that it's wrong, they are willful. I am not speaking about people 
who are converted, who have a homosexual problem, who have repented of it and are struggling with it. We're not talking about them. This is blatant, willful practice of homosexuality. So then, we must now move on and ask this question. Seeing as we have these people in our churches, in the Christian church, and nowadays you must always put that phrase in inverted commas, I'm afraid, but now that we have these people in the Christian church who claim to be Christians, and who indeed may well be, they may well be born again, and yet they are living in blatant, unrepentant and willful homosexual practice, what are we to do about them? What are we to do about this problem that we have? Now, what I'm going to do is to show you now the principles that we're given in the New Testament for dealing with just these very instances. And we're going to see now what the Bible commands you do in relation to Christians or people who call themselves Christians and may well be, they might not be, but they call themselves Christians. That's the all-important thing. What we do with people like that, yet who are living in blatant, unrepentant sin. And, in fact, this principle covers a much wider area than simply homosexual immorality, but it does include that as well. Now then, if you go to Matthew 18, and we'll start with the actual teaching of Jesus. Not because the teaching of Jesus is any more authoritative than anything else the Bible says, because the Bible is all the teaching of Jesus, it just seems to be a logical place to start. So then, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We have here a situation where someone is in proven unrepentant sin. All right? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what's the significance of Gentiles and tax collectors to the Jews? Because Jesus was teaching this to the disciples who were Jews. The Jews had nothing to do with Gentiles, and they had nothing to do with tax collector. And by the way, in the AV, tax collector is quite stupidly translated publican. It's daft, because publican, you think of a pub owner. That's not it at all, tax collector. The tax collectors were actual Jews, but they were turncoats. They worked for the Romans. They took the taxes for the Romans out of the Jews, but they got commission on it. And they fiddled their own brethren, you know, their own people. They were traitors. So therefore the Jews would have nothing to do with Gentiles and certainly nothing to do with tax collectors. So Jesus is here saying, if you have someone in the church who claims to be a believer, and they are in a proven serious sin, and they refuse to repent, this is the key thing, they refuse to repent, then you put them outside of the church. You have nothing to do with them whatsoever. Go to 1 Corinthians 5, and we see how Paul actually expands this principle when dealing with a situation in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 15. He says, 1 Corinthians 5, sorry, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral men, not at all meaning the immoral of the world. So Paul's saying, look, it doesn't matter what non-Christians do. I mean, what your non-Christian friends do is no problem. The moral standards of the kingdom aren't, you know, I mean, they have no claim on them. He says, I wrote to you 
not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or a robber, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Drive out the wicked person from among you. Now, what we've got here is this. Paul is saying, if you have people who claim to be believers, whether they are or not, if they claim to be Christians, if they are living in blatant sin and will not repent of that sin and admit that it's wrong, will not confess it as sin, then he says, you must not have fellowship with them. You must have nothing to do with them. He says, do not even eat with such a one. And the principle is, Drive out the wicked person from among you. This is what the Bible tells us we must do. And remember, we're looking at the specific problem of leaders, so-called leaders in the so-called church, who are willful practicing homosexuals. And what we are seeing is that the rule with them is that we must have nothing to do with them whatsoever. We must drive them out from amongst us. But what I want to show you now is that there are other specific sins which have to get this kind of treatment as well. If you go to Romans 16, Romans 16 and verse 17, now listen to what Paul says here. I appeal to you, brethren, to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them. Now Paul is here dealing with troublemakers. Now I've got to clarify this because I know people who think I'm the biggest troublemaker in the church they've ever met. We've got to understand this because Jesus calls more trouble than anybody. Look at what Paul says, who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine. We're not talking about people here who are causing trouble by doing what the Bible says. We're talking about people who cause trouble by going against what the Bible says. Can you see that? Now these are people who just love arguments. These are people who just love stirring it up. There are people like this. They are contentious people. They just love fighting. They're never happier than when they're stirring it. These are the kind of people that Paul is talking about. He says, have nothing to do with them. Avoid them. Go over into Titus. Paul's letter to Titus. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus. And in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, As for a man who is factious... Now, what do factious people do? They go around splitting everyone up all the time. Again, for the wrong reasons. These are just troublemakers, all right? They just like causing trouble amongst people. As for a man who is factious, after admonishing him once or twice, he gets his warnings that what he's doing is wrong, and he's told he's got to repent. After admonishing him once or twice, and we're assuming now he won't repent, have nothing more to do with him. Now go to Galatians. Galatians 5 and verse 12. And Paul says, he's talking now about the circumcision party. These were Christians who were also Jews. And when they got converted, they went around insisting that Gentiles become Jews, which was absolutely opposed to the gospel that Jesus preached. And they caused loads and loads of trouble. 
Now, a lot of people, in hearing this, they're thinking, oh, this is a bit harsh, this isn't very loving, this isn't very Christian, is it? You see. And they say, if you do this, you're not showing love to people. I mean, I've been told I've got a wrong attitude because I believe this that I'm saying. Let's see what Paul's attitude is. Remember, he's talking here about the Christians who were also Jews who went around saying that Gentile converts ought to become Jews and therefore had to be uh, circumcised. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would mutilate themselves. It's not a very Christian attitude, is it? It's Paul the Apostle. What he's literally saying is, he says, look, these guys want everyone to be circumcised. He says, I wish they'd go all the way. Wish they'd castrate themselves. Then we wouldn't have any more trouble from them. That's literally what Paul is saying here. Can you see, he's so angry because troublemakers destroy the chances of God's people coming through to the inheritance that Jesus has for them. Can you see, Paul was a fighter for the rights of God's people. And when Christians came along who were out of line and prevented those of God's people who were in line receiving their rights and living peacefully before the Lord, then Paul was angry and the anger of the Lord came through him and he dealt with those people so that the innocent were no longer suffering because of the sin of the guilty. Now then, there's one other group of people we've seen that troublemakers are to be dealt with in the body of Christ. But if you go to 2 John, the second epistle of John, there's another group of people as well. And this is also incredibly pertinent today to the Church of England. And in 2 John, and if you find verse 7, John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. antichrist. He's talking about heretics. And remember, the church, the Anglican church, is controlled by the modernistic theologians. These are people who do not believe the Bible literally. They believe it's symbolism. They think that there's truth behind the symbolism, but they don't believe it literally. They don't believe that God became a man in Jesus literally. They don't believe that Jesus rose again from the dead literally. They don't believe that there was literally a virgin birth. You've only got to hear these guys on the telly. It speaks for itself, doesn't it? These are the kind of people John is referring to here. They do not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. In order to acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, you've got to believe of Jesus that he was the second person of the Trinity throughout eternity and 2,000 years ago changed the state in which he existed in and became a human being. Now these guys who run the C of E don't believe that in any way at all. They say they do, they use the words, but it's symbolism. They don't believe it literally. Listen to what John says. Look to yourselves that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Because these guys shipwreck believers. Look what they've done to the Church of England, they've shipwrecked it. Anyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, this is what you do if you end up in fellowship with heretics. Whether they're Christians or not, this is what you do if these men call themselves Christians. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for he who greets him shares his wicked work. Now that's tough, but that's what the Bible says. I'm sorry. But if we are to be in obedience to the Bible, you will not have the Bishop of Durham in your house. This is what the Bible teaches. And today, the church is run by these guys. And sadly, it's not just the Church of England. The Methodist Church is in the same boat. Other churches are as well. The United Reformed Church. 
You're hard-pressed to find a minister coming out of the United Reformed Church who is a genuine Christian. There are some, but they are few. It's even in Baptist House. I've, I've had lunch at Baptist House in London with the big boys. And I've sat next to one of their ministers, one of the big boys, witnessing to him because he wasn't a Christian. This is all over the place in the institutional churches. Not so long ago, Robert Runcie, the Archbishop of Canterbury, came back, having been in India and that area, and he came back extolling how moved he was upon worshipping at a service in India at an Indian shrine, an idol. And he was saying, how dare we as Christians say that that is not a genuine experience of God? He said he wouldn't want to be that narrow. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the leader of the so-called National Church, is an idolater. He's a heretic. John Hadgood, the Archbishop of, uh, of York. I mean, if you ask him if he believes that God answers prayer, do you know what his answer is? He does not believe in a divine computer in heaven that starts ticking when you pray to it and makes something happen that wouldn't have done otherwise. He thinks it's abhorrent. He doesn't believe in a literal God who is actually there. Can you see? His belief in God is merely symbolic. It's not literal in any way at all. David Jenkins, the Bishop of Durham, we all know about him. He's recently brought out a book, and in this book he says that the idea of a God who actually gets involved with the universe and changes things in answer to prayer, he considers that monstrous. It's his word. He considers it monstrous. So then, where have we come to? We're seeing that unrepentant practicing homosexuals with troublemakers and heretics are also thrown in here are to be put out of the church totally until such time as they repent but you see there's a problem here with the church of England and this applies to other churches as well and the problem is this those in authority the leaders are among the worst offenders they call the tune and therefore, believers in the Church of England cannot do what the Bible says, cannot put these men out of fellowship, because those very men are in control, they have the clout, they have the authority, and they will not let you do what the Bible teaches. Can you see? Because the leaders, because the men at the top are among the worst offenders, and remember, even those who aren't themselves, for instance, practicing homosexuals, they're not doing an awful lot to bar practicing homosexuals, are they? They're protecting them. Therefore, the Bible tells you that you must put these men out of fellowship, put them out of the church, and yet these very churches are controlled by these men. You cannot do what the Bible says, because you haven't believers, for instance, in the Church of England, they haven't the clout. They're not in charge. It's the heretics and the, Im and the immoral people in charge. What can they do about it? Well, we've seen that when you have men like this, and women as well, in the church claiming to be Christians, we've seen that the principle is this, drive out the wicked person from among you. But we're seeing as well that believers in the Church of England cannot implement that principle. They cannot obey what the Bible says, because there's no way they can implement it. They do not have the authority. It's those in authority who are the ones who ought to be put outside of the church. So can you see? This principle, drive out the wicked person from among you. If you are in these types of churches, for instance in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, you cannot obey that principle. 
Therefore, there is never a time in the, in, in the believer's life where you are unable to, to obey what the Bible says. Because principle one, drive out the wicked person from among you, if for any reason you cannot obey that principle, there's another principle in the Bible that automatically does come into play, and it's one that you can obey. And to see it, go into 2 Corinthians. Remember, the principle is drive out the wicked person from among them. But if you're in a church, like the C of E, where it's the very guys who need putting out the church who are running the thing, and therefore you can't do it, when you cannot obey principle number one, then you must obey principle number two. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. Do not be mismated with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and iniquity? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will live in them and move among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here is principle number two. Therefore come out from among them, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. There it is, and that is feasible. For all the Christians, for instance, in the Anglican Church, they cannot obey the principle that Paul outlines in 2 Corinthians 5, drive out the wicked person from among them. They can't do it. There's no way they can. That's not their fault. But they can and should obey principle number two, to come out from among them and to be separate, to leave the church. Because so long as they remain in it, they are having fellowship with darkness, fellowship with heresy, fellowship with immorality. And you see, neither is it enough to say, for instance, that, that, that sort of you're part of an individual Anglican church which genuinely is trying to follow the Lord. That still isn't the point. Because an Anglican church is an Anglican church. It's a nationally identified organisation which our country now knows stands for immorality and heresy. I'm afraid there's no way round this. It may be offensive, but this is what the Bible teaches. This is what we must do if we are to be actually in obedience to what the Bible says. The Church of England is apostate. It, is, it sanctions immorality. It sanctions heresy. We cannot turn a blind eye to this anymore. We are the Lord's people, we are Christians, but we are now nationally identified as being sympathetic to heresy, sympathetic to practicing homosexuality, sympathetic to everything under the sun. Unless Christians now do what the Bible says and leave these churches and separate themselves, there is no way that our nation can be expected to know what real Christianity is. Our nation does not realise anymore that Christians actually believe the Bible. Because they're listening to the Bishop of Durham and Robert Runcie, who speak on our behalf. These men are heretics. Only when Christians separate themselves from the institutional churches can our nation begin to realise that even though those men call themselves Christians, that we, who call ourselves Christians, believe something totally different. Otherwise, the confusion that Satan is putting out in our society is not going to be abated in any way at all. And can you see also that this old, old argument, but the Lord wants us to stay in there and to reflect it. Can you see what a nonsense this is? The Holy Spirit does not lead anyone against the teaching of the Scripture. 
If you ever are led by the Holy Spirit to do something which is contrary to what the Bible teaches, then you know full well that the Bible is the final authority. That guidance fails the biblical test and therefore is not the Lord at all. In exactly the same way, when Christians say, but the Lord wants us to stay in there, he's leading us to stay in and reform it from the inside. In order to stay in these churches, you must be in obedience to the teaching of the Bible. There is no possible way the Holy Spirit's word now is come out. You cannot save these churches. And anyway, by the time you've restored, say, the Church of England to the Lord, so that everyone in the Church of England is living in submission to what the Bible teaches, everything that makes the Church of England the Church of England will be gone. Can you see what I mean? It's lunatic to say that we're going to stay in and reform it from the inside. There's no way that you can do it at all. We must make sure that we are not under any circumstances whatsoever identified with immorality or with heresy amongst professing Christians. I want to round off a few things now because our main subject is homosexual practice and there are just a few other things I want to say about that area in general and obviously it's a big question going around today is AIDS a judgment from God? Now a lot of Christians are confused about this is it or isn't it? Is AIDS God's judgment upon homosexual practice? Well you know me I never sit on the fence and therefore my answer to that is yes and no. <laughs> now, let me, let me explain. You see, we, I mean, for instance, in this salvation series that we've been doing, we've seen that the whole area of God's judgment, in fact, boils down that there are totally different types of judgment for totally different types of situation. It depends what sort of judgment you might think AIDS is. Now, one of God's judgment is that there are, at times, occasions when God will quite specifically zap an individual for a quite specific sin. Alright? That is one type of God's judgment. Rare, but nevertheless it's true. That's what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. A specific judgment on a specific sin. Now, if you're saying, is AIDS that sort of judgment? The answer is no. It's not that sort of judgment at all. And this is obviously clear to us in the sense that the nature of AIDS means that there are people who are not involved in homosexual immorality at all who get the disease, babies and things like that. No, it's not God specifically zapping a homosexual because he's a homosexual. It is not that type of judgment in any way at all. It's what I call God's built-in judgment. Just go back to Romans, Romans chapter 1. Because, you see, God has so created everything that with certain sins they have a built-in judgment. Things that happen as a result of committing sin, which wouldn't happen if you didn't commit it, but neither will they definitely happen if you do. For instance, venereal disease would be a good example of this built-in judgment. And, of course, venereal disease through the years has applied to heterosexual sin, alright? So that it's not a question that if someone is immoral as a heterosexual, that if they get VD, God says you're being immoral, zap, I'm going to zap you with VD. It's something that is built into it. You don't necessarily catch it, but you may well. And AIDS is that type of judgment. And in Romans chapter 1, 
And in verse 27, we've read it already, but let's, um, let's read it again. And men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And in fact, in the Greek, it's receiving into their own bodies the due penalty of their error. Now, I've explained here before that when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, you remember God had given Adam and Eve authority over nature, and they were under God's authority. Now, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, nature, planet Earth, rebelled against Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve rebelled against who they should have been in submission to. Nature rebelled against who it should have been in submission to. Therefore, the fall of Adam and Eve meant this. Sinful mankind became God's enemy. The truth of the matter is that nature is our enemy because mankind fell away from God. Therefore, disease and things like that, it's nature striking back at man. All right. And this is part of the judgment that God built into the universe. He said to Adam and Eve, you've rebelled against me. Right. Nature, as a consequence, is now going to um, rebel against you. And of course, the answer to this, whether we're talking about VD or whether we're talking about AIDS, if there was no sexual sin, diseases like that would not come into being. So be very clear, if someone, if a practicing homosexual ends up with AIDS, it doesn't mean that God has specifically cursed him because he individually is a practicing homosexual. That's not it at all. It's a built-in judgment as VD is pertaining to heterosexual sin. A second thing I just want to chuck out, because this goes against the kind of the current thinking on this subject, there is no proof whatsoever that homosexuality or lesbianism is genetic. Now, the standard thing is to say, and, and, and these, these Christians in the church use this argument, they say, you know, I mean, I've, I've seen Anglican vicars interviewed on television, they are practicing homosexuals. And they say, I'm not going to repent of the fact that I'm a homosexual. God created me that way. That would be a blasphemy. That would be going against what God created me to be. And can you see another ridiculous attempt to justify their own sinfulness? Because there is no evidence whatsoever that you are born a homosexual if you're a man, or that you are born a lesbian if you're a woman. All the evidence is, and there's no evidence that goes against this, all the evidence in actual fact is that everyone is born genetically heterosexual. Homosexuality lesbianism, bestiality, all these sexual deviances or deviations are learned behaviour. They are acquired behaviour. You're not necessarily stuck with being it. And so the point is that for people who find that their sexual orientation is towards their own sex, then what we're seeing is this. If that was acquired behaviour, it can be unlearned as well. And the Lord can deliver people from it. And there are people who have come to know the Lord who have had their sexual orientation normalised. They no longer have homosexual or lesbian desire. They're happily married, heterosexuals. God has delivered them. And of course, one thing that's important to get hold of as well is this. That homosexual practice is sin 
but there's no problem actually being a homosexual or a lesbian. It's practicing it that is wrong. And we must make that distinction. It's terribly important. A man or a woman cannot help having homosexual or lesbian tendencies. But practicing it is wrong. In the same way that, I mean, a perfectly normal heterosexual man or woman who's single they can't help having sexual urges, it's just that they mustn't practice those urges until they're married. Can you see it's the same thing? And homosexuals and lesbians, when they become Christians, can expect from the Lord, in his time and in his way, to be delivered from it and to be made normal again. Alright. Now, there's something else that I want to say as well, and I think this is tremendously important. You see, there are lots of people today who are Christians, they are our brothers and sisters. And they have become Christians, and they are in fellowship with us. And they are people whose sexual orientation remains towards their own sex. They still have a homosexual problem. Now they've practiced it in the past probably, but now they're Christians, they know it's wrong, and they've repented of it, and they are struggling with it. Now, what I want to get across is this. It's a tragedy, to my mind, in the Christian church, that in actual fact, my brothers and sisters, who I know, who are homosexuals and lesbians, they've repented, they're struggling with their problem, and it's absolutely no problem whatsoever. I have to guard the fact that they have that problem. Now that's a tragedy, because what would happen is that a lot of Christians would, if they realised that that was your problem, they, they, would, they would be ultra-disgusted. Do you see what I mean? It would affect them. Can you see what a tragedy this is? Because no matter what anyone has done, if they've repented of it, they're forgiven. It's no problem, you see. And isn't it terrible that people in this position actually have to hide the fact that they're still struggling with that problem because of the potential rejection they would experience from other Christians in their fellowship. And let me say, I mean, for instance, there are people with a homosexual problem that I fellowship with. So what? Can you see? It's only if Satan can get you thinking the wrong way. It's no problem whatsoever. And in actual fact, they inform me, and I think they're dead right, that in actual fact, they don't like to be referred to as homosexuals. They feel it's right that if they must be referred to, to be referred to as people with a homosexual problem. Now that makes sense to me, and for this reason. You don't think of me as being a heterosexual. The thought never crosses your mind, does it? I'm Beresford, okay, with my sexuality as being part of me. Now in exactly the same way, people who are struggling with their homosexuality or lesbianism, they are people. If we label them homosexuals, then can you see as if that's all there is to them? It isn't. It's just a problem they've got. Can you see? It's tremendously important. I can understand why they feel like that. I mean, it's like, for instance, I mean, it's like, say, say someone here has got a particular problem with the temper. And, I mean, some people, they have a bad temper and they come into the kingdom and they struggle with it. They repent of it and they're looking to the Lord to deliver it them from it. And every time they flare, they repent and say, oh Lord, help, you know, etc, etc, and they're struggling with it. Now, if we had someone in the fellowship with that problem, Every time they walked in, you wouldn't sit there thinking, oh, there's that bad-tempered one coming in. you think, oh, there's so-and-so. Now, if you knew people who were struggling with a homosexual problem, wouldn't it be a tragedy if every time they walked in you thought, oh, there's that homosexual? Wouldn't that be a tragedy? You see, because they're a new creation. They've been forgiven. 
And we and I think this is tremendously important because the day has got to come when these, our brothers and sisters, can surface safely and can be honest with us without fearing that they might be rejected or reacted to. I mean, I can remember one example. A friend of mine, and when he shared this problem with me, I mean, I just, I was stupid, I was daft, I only thought about it afterwards, but I mean, you know, we all have to learn in regards to this. And when I discovered that he did have a homosexual problem, uh, I mean, so I, I said to him, is it helpful to you or a hindrance if I give you a hug? You see, it was a stupid, he said it doesn't make any difference. And I, I realised how stupid I was being. Because, you see, the point is, I hug other men's wives. Can you see how daft... If us men realise that there's someone amongst us who's got homosexual problems, suddenly we don't want to hug them in case they fancy us. Well, we don't stop hugging other people's wives. We don't stop hugging our unmarried sisters. Can you see, we've got to re-educate ourselves in regards to this. And that whereas I've shown you very, very clearly that homosexual practice is an abomination and it is tremendously serious, the point is that for believers who are struggling with it and trying to get free of it, they're forgiven. They're new creatures in Christ Jesus. And all of us know that in our struggle against sin, we fall occasionally. Yes? you notice that? I have. <laughs> you see? Therefore, with brothers and sisters who are struggling with lesbian or homosexual practices, it may be that even they are occasionally going to fall. Well, do you know what we do? We forgive them and we accept them just the way they are because they're living in repentance and they are struggling against it. They are to be forgiven and they are to be utterly accepted just the way they are. Now then, I want to just put this into a little bit of perspective. I'm talking about the fact, and, and it saddens me, that some of my friends who I'm in fellowship with have a lovely time with their mates, they cannot surface, alright, they cannot let it be known that they're struggling with a homosexual problem, because they know that they're going to be rejected. Now, you see, the thing is this, let's say, for instance, that someone came here and they suddenly said, look, I want you all to know I am a person who has a homosexual problem. My sexual leaning is towards my own sex. Now, a lot of Christians, they're actually, well, it's an abomination, it's disgusting, disgusting. And I must admit, I don't get the impression, reading the Gospels about Jesus, when he walked around with adulterers and prostitutes, that he was always muttering, disgusting, under his breath. I don't get that picture from Jesus at all. But wouldn't it be terrible that, you know, we say, oh, that's awful, the Bible says that's an abomination, and somehow we, we, we just steer a little bit away from them. Well, I'll tell you something else in the Bible that's an abomination. And if you're going to treat a Christian who's been into a particular abomination like that and kind of keep them at arm's length, then you've got to treat all believers who have been into abominations in the same way. Now, I'll tell you, in the Bible, another sin which the Bible speaks of as an abomination, which is equally as heinous and disgusting to God as practicing homosexuality. Do you know what it is? It's occult involvement. Now, we've seen that occult involvement is a sin against nature. It's going against barriers that you should never transgress. Occult involvement is the illicit and illegal uh, fellowship with angels by human beings. Can you see that? Occult involvement is when you cross the barrier and you have an illegal two-way thing 
with angels or evil spirits. That's why occultism is an abomination. Can you see? It's going against God's created order. It's seeking fellowship with the spirit world apart from doing it through Jesus. Therefore, can you see that occultism is an abomination in exactly the same way as homosexual practices? Now then, I have committed terrible abomination. So has Robert. Robert and I, as you know, were up to here in the occult before we became Christians. Now let me tell you what my experience is. I find that as I mix with Christians and they get to know me, when they discover my past life and they realise that I was involved in the occult and I was repented of it and God set me free, they get all excited. I find that usually, in fact, I'm a little bit of a hero, which is understandable, I am. But can you see what I mean? That, that you're a bit of a celebrity because you've been delivered out of such evil. Can you see? If we're going to be consistent, we should treat brothers and sisters who have been into homosexual practice and lesbianism exactly the same way. Isn't it a shame that we don't? So let me say this to you. If you're going to shun your brothers and sisters who are struggling with their homosexual or lesbian problem, then I think you ought to shun Robert and I as well. I've never found any reason to shun Robert. I've never found any reason to shun myself, even though the two of us committed abominations before God. And I'll tell you, as I've got to know, friends who love the Lord and who are struggling with a homosexual problem that they have, I have never found any reason whatsoever to shy away from them. In fact, I don't even think of it. Why should you? It's crazy. Now, can you see, there are so many people out there who need deliverance. If they cannot find acceptance and love in the church when they repent, where else are they going to find it? They've got to find it amongst us. So, I think you can see that there's what at first sight might look to be a little bit of a contradiction here. As Christians, if there are other Christians who are into unrepentant homosexual practice, we are to be intolerant. Totally. If we have brothers and sisters who have repented of their homosexual or lesbian problem, even though they're still struggling with it, we are to be the most tolerant and accepting people in the world. The only question is, is there repentance? Is there a turning away from it? And the problem that we're facing in the Church of England, for instance, is that there is no repentance. Evil is being called good. We must take action against it. And I want to end with one more quote from a newspaper. Now, how many people here have heard of Muriel Gray? Come on, admit that you watch Fox on the Box. No? Well, Muriel Gray is, is, is a rather trendy TV presenter. Uh, she used to do that thing with Jules Holland. What was that thing on Channel 4, the pop <coughs> programme? The Tube, that's right. She used to do The Tube with Jules Holland, and she's, you know, done various other things. And she also writes a column for the Sunday Scottish Mirror. Girl. Scottish girl, that's correct. Now, I want to read what she has written in the Sunday Mirror on November the 15th, 1987. She has entitled it The Straight and the Narrow. Now, listen to this. This is important. And remember, this is an unbeliever who's writing this. These are mighty confusing times, and I don't mind admitting my confusion. I have always believed that homosexuals were just ordinary human beings who held sexual preferences no more or less remarkable than the quirky little preferences we all have. 
Some like redheads, some wear party hats in bed, some shout, oh yes, hamsters, and some prefer their own sex. I find the gay community perfectly normal, and I find their sex lives as deeply uninteresting as I find everybody else's. But even though I don't share their way of life or their beliefs, I respect their right to pursue it. So what she's saying, she has no objection. She, she does not think that homosexual practice is a sin. After all, why should she? She's not a Christian. But listen to this. The same used to go for my attitude to religion. It's not my cup of tea, but by all means carry on living by the rules as you see fit. Now this is where my confusion starts. I've read the Christian rule book. She's speaking about the Bible now. I've read the Christian rule book. And I am afraid that along with a lot of other fairly innocent practices, homosexuality is definitely a sin. So she's saying she doesn't agree with the Bible or anything like that, but she says, nevertheless, if you're going to be a Christian, good luck to you. But if you are a Christian, then it's the Bible that's your rule book. Isn't it weird that unbelievers get this quicker than bishops? Isn't this strange? <laughs> now listen how she goes on. Listen to this. If you are a Christian, the Bible is the word of God and it is not negotiable. I love that. If she was a Christian, I call that prophetic. It's certainly true. I'll read it again. If you are a Christian, the Bible is the word of God and it is not negotiable. At least, that's what I thought. But it seems that church leaders, who are, after all, just a collection of very earthbound, mostly male humans, have a direct line to God and can sit down, have a bit of debate and decide what is and isn't a sin. She's saying this is ridiculous. She says, look, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, the Bible is your rule book. It's not negotiable. But she says, now we have the very leaders of this whole Christian thing. They sit down, have a little bit of debate, and they redefine what is or isn't a sin. She says, that's pretty handy. I'm sure you'll agree. Because isn't it great if you can just redefine sin? Well, that's handy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. She says, so if gays were worried about whether Church of England homosexual priests would be expelled or not, there was no real cause for concern. But not because the verdict went in their favour, but, but because with such a bunch of arrogant hypocrites wearing their long frocks, dog collars and pious grins and making the rules up as they go along. Who cares what the church thinks about the price of butter, let alone homosexuality? No wonder church attendance numbers are beginning to resemble those of the Coatbridge Stamp Collectors Club. <laughs> now there we have the Church of Jesus Christ being convicted, rightly, by an unbeliever. Unbelievers know that these men are hypocrites. Now can you see that for us, who recognise, as Muriel Gray recognises, that the Bible is the word of God and it is not negotiable, that means that we must live in obedience to it. And I'm afraid that we must no longer stand with the hypocrisy of the institutional churches. To do so is to be identified with it. We cannot afford to do that anymore. We must separate ourselves. We must have nothing to do with them any longer. I do not mean that we must have nothing to do with believers who remain in them. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm quite happy to have fellowship with you if you're my brother or sister, no matter what church you go to. 
And after all, I mean, I know that you don't think of yourselves as Anglicans or Methodists. We're just believers together. But you see, the point is, if you wish to remain in these churches, then because you're my brother and sister, I'll have fellowship with you, no problem. But I'm saying that to be consistent, we must have nothing to do with them. Which means you must come out. If you remain in, for me, that means I will have fellowship with you any time. You're my brother and sister. But don't ask me to come along to your church. That's all. I can have nothing to do with it. Can you see we must dissociate ourselves from the hypocrisy that the Sunday mirror fully sees and can fully identify with? I'm afraid the choice has boiled down today between obedience to Jesus or going with the institutional churches. I've made my choice. And I implore all of you to make yours as well and to do what the Bible says. You cannot drive out the wicked person from among you. You do not have the authority. It's the wicked people who are running the show. You must therefore implement principle number two. You must come out from among them and be separate. And you must only be part of churches living in clear, unequivocal obedience to the word of God as their final authority. I'll leave it there.